Our winter is a little dry this year, but I had photographs this morning from my uh, stepdaughter in Canada, and it's, it's not snowing. <laughs> it's deep and cold. It's beautiful from a distance, but it gets hard to live with after a while. So here we are in our very lovely, mild climate, sometimes too mild. So the, we had a session that ended just over a week ago. And uh, the topic of the session talks has been still echoing in my mind, so I'm bringing it back. The topic is an exchange between a Chinese Zen master, a Chan master, Xuan Sha, and a monk. And the gist of it is that once a monk asked Xuan Sha, I heard that you said, the entire world in the ten directions is one bright pearl. How should I understand this? And Xuan Cha's answer is, after a little back and forth, is what do you do with your understanding? So this how do you understand what's going on here and what do you do with your understanding basically sums up uh, Dharma practice. You might say that's one of the differences between doing a kind of a uh, just a mindfulness practice, sort of what they call secular mindfulness. It's very nice. It can help you feel calm and quiet, but it doesn't ask these big questions. It doesn't say, what do you understand about the world? And it doesn't say, and how will you live with that? So those are really a, a way, one of many ways of saying, this is, what we're, this is what we're inquiring about. So this one bright pearl is, a, is really a beautiful expression of what we call Buddha nature, your true nature. We say your true nature, we're talking about your true nature and Buddha nature when the same true nature is the nature of all beings. So it's the same, but no one phrase will ever truly express it completely. So we have this phrase and that phrase, because we are always in one perspective or another perspective. That's the nature of limited beings. You're here or you're there. So you see it from this side or that side and another side. And so I always encourage you from your own side to find your own words, your own phrase that for you now expresses, expresses this and let that change too. So this is a statement of one inclusive world because we focus on the one bright pearl, but it's the whole world in 10 directions, which is cardinal directions that ordinals in between and up and down, like every, everywhere. This is a grand expression of the, the entirety of space. In the entirety of inclusive universe, you share with all beings the endless changes of impermanence and the endless interwoven life of interdependence. We all share this nature. It's how beings are, and so it's the basis of what beings do. And the sort of the promise of the Buddha Dharma, which we investigate with our own bodies because we can't, we're not asking for blind faith here, is how do you awaken to this? What does it mean to wake up to this? And how do you do that? And what does it taste like and feel like and look like? All beings have the capacity to awaken to our true nature, each according to our own particular nature. 
right? We have a shared nature as living beings, and each species and each individual has a particular nature and particular capacities and particular ways to express that. And along with the mind of insight and the heart of love, which is what we come with, we also have these human cap capacities uh, for the mind of delusion and the heart of greed and hatred, which impel us away uh, from the truth of life. This pearl, this uh, one bright pearl, uh, is classically described as radiating and receiving all colors all the time. That's the nature of what's going on. Every, all colors, sounds, all is, is endlessly radiating and receiving. But we see a few colors, a few sounds. We see, we perceive a little bit. In fact, we see a little bit of what's in front of our eyes. So we see sights and sounds and thoughts and feelings. And we tend to think, okay, that's what's going on here. That's what our mind tells us. Mind says, this is what I see. This is what it is. And we're educated to that as well. Because we're educated to refine our perceptions, refine our ability to see and hear and attend to what's going on here. But that tends to leave us with the, uh, a world that's um, a pile of objects, a pile of perceptions, not seeing the pearl or the true self that is radiating and receiving, only seeing the outer expression manifestations of that. So then reality is seen as bits and pieces strewn about, not really connected. And if really reality were just bits and pieces strewn about, uh, there'd be little coherence or meaning. And so organizing life by me would make sense. And that's a lot of why that does is where people default to. Because I would be the sole source of meaning if the world is just random bits and and pieces. So Schwanshaw is saying that nothing is left out. The entire world in the ten directions is one bright pearl, is coherent. And that this is so whether you understand it or not, whether you pay attention or not. But if you don't heed it and you don't investigate, you wind up living in the illusory world of thinking that the world is just a lot of bits and pieces and doesn't make much sense. And furthermore, if it's all bits and pieces, everything is separated from everything else. And everything is alienated from everything else. So this is a world of vision of separation and suffering. But it's, it's a vision. It's not really how the world is. It's just one way of making kind of a limited coherence. So as you come to practice and understand the bright pearl or your true nature, you start to see, and it comes both ways, or you start, to, you start to see endless connections and movement and giving and receiving. Or you start to, to understand that there are endless connections and giving and receiving. You say, oh, there is coherence, and I'm part of that. And that's a way into understanding Buddha nature, which otherwise could seem like an abstract concept. And these, these 
coming to see and, and understand the endless interwoven connection of things makes life very interesting and valuable and gives us a basis for relating to each other, not as just separate bits and pieces, and I have to guard mine and see how much little bit of yours I can allow near me. But we're already connected. Now I better understand how that is so that I can work with it productively so that I can have the pleasure of it. And through that, there's understanding of ourselves, others, and our potential. This is a larger world. The world in which we're all connected is a much larger world than one in which everyone is a separate little uh, alienated bit. And so this teeming world of giving and receiving, radiating and receiving, uh, interconnection, is the, also the same world of impermanence. Again, two, where we have two different words, they're really talking about the same thing. They're talking about the same universe. When we see it in terms of the space and all the, all the interwovenness of beings, we call it interdependence. And when we see it in terms of the movement of time and change, we call it impermanence. But they're both the same large movement, just viewed from different perspectives, the same reality. And appreciating impermanence reminds us that life is both precarious and precious, and often very much at the same time. Uh, I came within inches of being smashed to bits in Sebastopol at 10 in the morning this week. I think it was a cell phone afflicted driver, because at 10 in the morning, slowly cruising up 116 into town just before the hospital. And there's a side street, and there's a red car that stops 10 in the morning. It's, it has been raining, but it's not foggy now. My car is white. It's not a little black, invisible thing. There's a red car sitting there. That, and just as I kept going, I mean, I have no, I'm have just moving along on the road, the car started into me. They had, I, I, in retrospect, I think, oh, they said to themselves, I stopped, and now I go. But now I go was directly into me. And so I managed, because I was feeling alert that morning and going slow, I don't always, I hit the horn and I swerved and I waited for the, for the crash of metal and it didn't come. We passed each other by inches. And I drove on to where I was going in a state of shock. And I saw in my rearview mirror that they completed their turn and parked. And then when I got to where I was going, I said, oh, you know, if I hadn't been in such shock, I would have stopped to see if they were, that they were all right. But I think since they were able to complete their turn and pull over to the curb and stop, it probably was just a cell phone at any time. So I was very happy all day, except in a little bit of a daze. You know, you, you never know when life is going to make your life precarious or short. The fragility and the preciousness of life go hand in hand. They're not two separate things. So impermanence is endless change in movement, birth and death. So it's the heart of the constant give and take of receiving and giving. And is that, that clear? The, the dance of life is constant movement, not random, but interrelating. Now we talk about randomness in that it's not, we're not talking about a, a fate and a destiny in a teleological universe. So we could say, well, it's, I remember what Shyamal Roshi said, it's, 
by chance that I was born here in Japan. Well, actually wasn't. His parents were Japanese and his genes were Japanese and, and his parents were, you know. So in a sense, it's, it's, we happen to be, and, and there's a kind of a random feeling about it, but it, it's not planned. I mean, you can plan a baby, but you can't plan what kind of person it's gonna be. You can't know. They don't even, the birth that isn't, isn't that kind of person it's gonna be. So there's, a, there's an unknown. There's looseness in this. This isn't a tightly held and controlled universe, but it isn't exactly random because everything is connected, but not according to some preordained plan. It just is the activity of connection. So as you come toward understanding Buddha nature, the one bright pearl, how do you express it in living your life? And whether you feel you just barely have a hint of it or you feel you really have a real strong sense of interconnection, it's all the same question. It doesn't matter in that sense. The question is, how do you express it? And the thing is, it's not just how do I understand it so I can express it. Whatever you do in attempting to express your understanding of life feeds that understanding. There is no wisdom in the Buddha Dharma without compassion, without the activities that inform it and refine it. Otherwise, it's just an intellectual exercise. So your understanding is formed and refined in the give and take with all the others with whom you're giving and receiving. And if your actions don't express it, then uh, you can't really understand it. So how are things really? I can have words like Buddha, Buddha, Buddha nature and we can say impermanence and interdependence. The question, how are things really? And how do you live in the light of reality? So we, we actually rely on the whole earth and all her beings at every moment of our life, living in a world and a life of endless giving and receiving. And this is this giving and receiving, and the Dharma tradition has a phrase for it, which I love, called imperceptible mutual assistance. Isn't that lovely? Because we are supporting and assisting each other's lives. No one lives in a vacuum. A lot of it's imperceptible, and so we ignore it all too often. Imperceptible mutual assistance at all times. Doesn't pick and choose. So what do you do in a world of imperceptible mutual assistance? This is a, a grand question. This is a moral inquiry into your whole life and aspiration, is what do you do? Because it asks, what kind of person do you want to be? And how do you take part in the world? What will be your impact? So the Buddha Dharma has endless teachings on this because this is really the grand theme. We have practices of awakening that seem to be more specifically about awakening. Called, some of them are zazen, and others that are more specifically seem to be about uh, generosity. They are all practices about what's going on really and how do you live it out. One of them that I came back to and was thinking about this was uh, Dogen Zenji's last teaching to his monks. 
he was only about 53. They were up in what was then called Echizen-Nigata area, way up north in Japan. And he was sick. Maybe it was a cancer. And he, and finally, uh, his monks prevailed on him, or to, and maybe his patron, to go all the way to Kyoto, across Japan, which meant being carried in a litter, basically, the whole way, uh, for treatment. And in the end, he died there. He didn't come back. And he probably knew that was happening. So he gave his last teaching, his last dated teaching that we have in his Shobo Genso is called um, Eight Practices of Awakening Beings. These are eight practices or attitudes for ordinary beings aiming at deep lives. So that's the kind we've got. And the one that has stayed most with me uh, is, he says, it's very important to know what is enough. Knowing what is enough. When we really know what is enough, our desires shrink. Because our desires, a lot of them, some of them come welling up from us, but a lot of them have to do with not really taking heed of what, where we are and what, who we are and what we already have. Because most of our desires are for more than the idea of securing our life by wealth, status, retirement funds, new clothes, a different haircut, a better job, which are all have their place in our lives, but in themselves are part of that atomized world of disparate pieces. The more as the operating uh, thread bringing them together is, is, is really a hell realm. Or we want more because it feels good, short term. That's why our malls are full. There's something exciting about getting something new. Yeah? Uh, and then you take it home and it, you already have. Yeah. So one of, the, one of his others of his eight practices for awakening beings is having few desires. But I think you see that that fault, fault comes out of knowing what is enough. It's more natural to find out to know what is enough. Because if you have to have few desires, isn't, we're not talking about uh, reining yourself in against what you want to have. Um, while I was thinking about this, Chris Dover sent me an article. You hear? Yes, here it is. About, uh, about voluntary simplicity, written about almost 100 years ago. And some of it was still remarkably current. Some of it, not quite so much. He had no idea how complex this world, this world was going to be when he was saying we have too many washing machines. You know, <laughs> but he was still in the right town going on an interesting track there. And he quotes Gandhi in, this, in, his, in his essay. He says, uh, the, so the author tells Gandhi when they meet together that he feels really greedy about his many books and doesn't really want to give them up. And Gandhi said, well, then don't give them up. Keep anything that you already have, as long as you derive real pleasure or benefit from it. Giving things up in self-denial haunts you, and he said, and leads you to want it back. Um, give up when something no longer attracts, or interferes with something more important, like freedom or ease. When we live in the world of disparate pieces, more is, well, I could get rid of this, but then I'm going to want another that. So knowing what is enough is a grounding so that you can say, oh, if I have fewer things, I might have more free time, you know, a whole different category of, of good. So knowing what is enough is not 
asceticism. It's a release from a certain kind of uh, pain and constriction. And then another one of uh, Dogen's eight recommendations to his monks was right effort, which comes up in many places, but I particularly like his description of it. Because he says, these can seem very lofty, these having few desires or knowing what is enough. So he says, right effort is a very thin thread of water falling on a rock. Eventually, it will pierce a hole in the rock. Mm. And we're not going to keep a stopwatch. We're not going to clock it or measure it. He's telling us that our life of aiming at waking up and living by this is a matter of not turning back, of going forward without measuring and gauging. Trusting yourself, or learning to trust yourself. Learning to trust the Dharma. Dogen goes on to other practices for awakening beings, including, of course, zazen. He'd never leave that out. And uh, mindfulness, and cultivating wisdom, not getting tangled in hollow discussions. And as I thought about his eight attitudes of awakening beings, I felt a strong urge to add to the list. So feel free, you know, feel free to add to the I want to add to the list, you can add to the list. Because what the whole side of compassion was not expressed. It's implicitly there. Because if you know what is enough and you have few desires, there's compassion will 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 be will express itself. Mindfulness expresses compassionately, or it isn't mindful. But it's only implicit. And Shakyamuni said over and over that our practice is for the well-being of all beings. And Dogen, Dogen at, at this sort of time of his life when he was giving this, this last talk and about to leave for Kyoto, had a private meeting with one of his senior monks. He only gave transmission to one, Ajo, who was his, also his scribe and compiled everything for him. But he's another very, very uh, mature monk there. And the, we know what, they, what Dogen said to him because there was a nun in the community who was cleaning his private quarters behind a screen the walls of rooms in Japan at that time being paper, right, paper screens. And she heard this dialogue. And because it was so important, she passed it on. And he said to this, to Tetsu Gikai, who's in our lineage next after Ajo, he said, you have great capability, but I cannot give you Dharma transmission because you do not yet have a heart of grandmotherly kindness. That was the stopping. So with that encouragement, I said, <laughs> what we want is to have other uh, practices to, to work with that clearly express the giving and receiving, the reciprocity of life. And that takes the form of generosity, that takes the form of compassion, that takes the form of love. Pick your own words. But we, we want to, we want always. So our traditions, Christian tradition, Buddhist tradition, Hindu tradition, almost every long Jewish, long-lasting religious tradition 
um, is not only very male-centered, but as a result, very much fixed on a, on a sort of a narrow concept of what's ration, of rationality. Um, uh, Western philosophy, I've been listening to lectures on uh, Western philosophy, and it's rationality uber alles. It's rationality as, but as the mind, as the thinking mind. And it's never been just that. Um, but it is the work of the gift of the 20th and 21st century Dharma to the stream of Dharma, and especially coming from the West, where we have a long uh, a tradition of studying the personality, and we have a, and we have a tradition of wanting to understand how to how to love and ha and have compassion, which is stated right there. The, the Dharma was right from the beginning. The Mahayana path is wisdom and compassion. But then all these teachings are mostly about wisdom, so we have to bring the other side in. That's our job is to keep awakening that side. When I was in, say, in the 80s in Minnesota, uh, even though uh, studying with Katagiri Roshi, he was a very feelingful person. It was, it was very rich and warm. I think uh, Suzuki Roshi had some of that too. Those, those, those became very appealing and attracting teachers. But they didn't talk about that much. And I had a friend who later did get ordained and became a teacher who was just deeply upset that, that she, was, she knew herself to be an extremely emotional and feeling-based person, and there seemed to be no place for her, for her gifts in the Dharma, in Zen. And um, I felt for her, but I, I was still fairly much at sea myself. I was still pretty much bent on an intellectual wisdom tradition at that time myself. But the times have changed. Over the past, say, 40 years, the Dharma in the West has really begun to evolve, and you are it. We together, but especially the lay sangha, which is also more importantly a part of the forward motion of the Dharma than it ever has been before. The Dharma is in your hands every bit as much as it's in the hands of the, of the people who are carrying the, the official tradition forward. Now, we need each other for this. So by the time we add the side of generosity, compassion, and love as expressions of reciprocity, along with the rational expressions of reciprocity, reciprocity goes through, is everything that we are doing. This all adds up to the bodhisattva path, which starts with what's classically called bodhicitta, the intention to wake up, the intention to wake up to life, that the idea that waking up to life is essential to refining your life and to living well as a life in the world with people. And as I was working on this, I realized that this, in a sense, is um, almost a segue to our ango for this year, because our ango, which begins the end in three weeks, is on the, the, the bodhisattva path in the form of the six perfections, the six paramitas. And um, perfection, like bodhisattva or Buddha nature, can seem rather exalted. But these are practices for this kind of, this kind of bodhisattva. Those of us with an intention to wake up, those who wanting to ask, what is really going on here? And what do I do with my understanding? How do I live in this light? So um, not worrying about perfection. These are classic 
and profound guides for our, our human lives. And every part of it, every one of the paramitas, is about how do you want to live and how do you want to go about it. So it's, it's uh, clarifying and cultivating our own lives as essential to living responsibly in and with and as the world of all beings.